Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Vincent. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. We don't write a whole lot, or at least as we as much as we used to. Um, I am working on an article now, but it's going to take some time, and I don't know if the other guys have anything coming on the pipe. There's plenty of material for, there for you to pull from. So that the particular Baptist.net. Also, our new book, The Infinite for Little Minds, The Doctrine of God for Children. You can pick that up on Amazon in Kindle format or in paperback if you haven't already. If you want to gift it to somebody, it's a great gift uh, for families to uh, teach their young children about God. So you can pick that up on Amazon, The Infinite for Little Minds, The Doctrine of God for Children. Um, and one other thing before we dive into our, our content today, um, just wanted to say a few things on Brother Sean, who was my co-host. Um, I had said before that Sean was taking um, a leave of absence or taking a break from the podcast, um, but he will actually not be coming back. Um, Sean has decided to step away from uh, the podcast uh, for personal reasons. I didn't push him away or anything. Um, I wasn't trying to get him to to get out or anything like that. Um, he chose to, to step away as co-host uh, for personal reasons. Uh, he's still involved in the particular Baptist ministry um, in other ways. He's, he hasn't disappeared, but as far as the podcast goes, uh, he will no longer be a co-host on the show. Um, so just wanted to say something about that. Um, you know, as especially as time goes on and you don't see him for a while, I might be wondering, where's Sean? Why isn't Sean here? Um, especially for the longtime listeners and those who have been from us or been with us from the beginning and have seen Sean on the show, uh, you might just wonder what's going on. So just wanted to say something about that. So it'll be uh, for now, it's just going to be me as the host. So uh, but I'm going to keep the show going. The show is right now. The show's not going anywhere and we'll keep pressing on. But with that, uh, we're going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, typically, we talk about some kind of topic or theological discussion, and this will certainly involve theological discussion, but we're going to be doing a book review. Um, I have a number of these, or I guess a few of these set up, uh, this one and two others that I want to do in the future, and there will be more hopefully down the road. But um, I have a, a stack of books that I've read that I want to uh, to kind of talk about. Uh, I love to read. I don't read as much as I uh, as I used to. Um, I've been focusing my attention on other areas, but I love to read. It's one of my favorite things to do, especially theological books, um, and especially historic books on historical theology, which this one we'll be talking about today. But um, I just I love to read, and so I go and and the way my my commute is set up, I take a uh, train to Washington, D.C., um, and it's about maybe an hour, 15 minutes, one way. So I get a lot of time uh, to do things like that, uh, thankfully. So I'm able to plow through books uh, at times. So I have a stack of books that I've I've plowed through and, and I want to talk about. Um, but today we're going to be going through or doing a book review on Carl Truman's book, The Claims of Truth, John Owen's Trinitarian Theology. This is published by Reformation Heritage. 
uh, is it Reformation Heritage? Yeah, Reformation Heritage Books, which is uh, run by Joel Beakey up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, it's a historical theology book um, written by Carl Truman, who is uh, many of you in the Reformed world probably heard of Carl Truman uh, and maybe even listened to him and benefited from his material. Um, brilliant scholar. Uh, he's a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, so he's on our side. He holds a lot of the same things we do, um, and just a, a very gifted and knowledgeable brother on things, historical theology, things that are relating to church history. Um, he's just very knowledgeable. I was listening to a lecture series that he did not too long ago on Martin Luther and the Reformation that he gave at uh, the Master Seminary. He did a He did a set of lectures there. And just he's able to just pull things from his mind and and spit historical facts out there and weave all of these historical realities or historical facts together into these major themes that you can uh, then kind of see the big picture of. And that's really one thing that he does in this book is he takes um, he, he likes to give context for a particular uh, topic that he's talking about. He doesn't like to just give you the topic that he's talking about. He also likes to say, here's the, the context of what this event happened in. He did that with the Reformation time, not just talking about Martin Luther, but also talking about uh, certain elements surrounding Luther's uh, time, which helps us to understand the why and the, and the what. And, okay, Luther thought this because of X, Y, and Z that was going on at the time, things like that. Um, and he does a really good job, I think, in this book of bringing out those kinds of themes as it relates to John Owen and talking about his Trinitarian theology. Um, and it really touches on on a few different points. It touches on uh, his Christology, his doctrine of God, um, some of his hermeneutical methodology um, and the nature of the satisfaction um, and talking about like the, the role of, of Aristotelian philosophy um, in certain doctrines that Owen was dealing with. Um, so it's very, very helpful in that regard, giving that historical context to be able to see John Owen in the world that he was in. Um, and it's not a very long book either. It's only, let's see, it's about, so the last appendix, appendix two, ends at page 239. So it's only about 200 pages. It's readable. It's not very difficult to grasp. It's it's very digestible. Um, it's not a you know 800 page book that you're going to spend months reading. Uh, you can, if you're diligent, you can blow through it pretty quickly and understand what's going on too. Um, and I got this book all marked up. I got highlights. I got um, you know I got pages marked and folded and all that stuff because there's so many good things in here that are very helpful. Um, but I, I found this. I find this book helpful. Because today, especially in RB circles, unfortunately, we find ourselves in this uh, recovery of the doctrine of God, and we see more material being made available, and things that have been available are being put front and center again. For instance, Richard Mueller's Post-Reformation Reform Dogmatics, which has been out for years, um, but provides a lot of helpful historical theological material in this area is now been put front and center again. 
Um, and there's other things that Mueller has written on as it relates to Thomism and, and uh, talking about philosophy and things like that from a historical theological perspective um, that is really helpful. Um, and that's kind of where we see uh, Carl Truman going with regards to this stuff. He's trying to put these things front and center and kind of following along the kind of the, the trail that Mueller paved. And even Mueller, uh, Richard Mueller, is one of the endorsers of this book as well. So we see Reformed Baptists are now in this recovery. So I think that this is a great place to start. There's a lot of books, or there's a number of books, I think, that are not as easy to read and to get into right away um, as it relates to these, this doctrine. Um, but this is a great way not only to kind of introduce you to some of the basics, but see that these things were grounded not just in uh, you know, the, the time of the Reformation, but even beyond that into the post-Reformation period, and that these men were not just making these things up. They were calling back to those things that the church had confessed and trying to bring them front and center, especially in response to certain heretical groups that were floating around and dissenting groups that were floating around that like Owen had to deal with. So very, uh, I think it's very helpful um, in that sense. So it gives kind of some helps with the historical theology side of the discussion. So you can see, you know, was this something that uh, was understood by the reformers at the time and was something that was confessed by the writers of the confessions that we hold to? You know, we have the, the three big ones, at least from our perspective, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith and the Savoy Declaration, which John Owen co-authored along with Thomas Goodwin, who was a Westminster divine. And they all basically say the same thing about God. So understanding Owen's context and, and what Owen thought about these things can help us to, to understand, at least in a general sense, what those confessions were saying, these things. So having a book like this really helps you to be able to have that perspective historically about these things that, you know, when, when people come at you and, and complain about philosophy being used in theology, and say, well, that's what these guys did. That's what Owen did. Uh, and they didn't have a problem with it. They weren't inconsistent with it. They were able to use those things in that language in a way that was beneficial and consistent and subordinate to Scripture without contradicting it. Um, so it's helpful to see those kind of things. I want to read a little bit from, from the book, and I'll quote a little bit from it today as we go through this. Um, on page 13, uh, let me jumping around here. Bear with me. Page 13, uh, he says, It was the issues with which he was confronted, he being John Owen, as a Reformed theologian of the 17th century that drove him back to church tradition that shaped and influenced which works he read, how he read them, and what ideas he drew for them. It is therefore important to know what the specific concerns of the 17th century reform were in order to fully understand the manner in which they used their sources. This is very important. This is very, very important. Owen was not trying to come up with anything new. There was this recovery even in his day that was going on. And so what Truman is trying to bring out in this book, at least in part, is that Owen was a Renaissance man. 
he was a retriever. He was going back to the sources, so to speak, and trying to draw from church tradition, not make up anything new, but trying to draw from church tradition and apply that to the theological context that he was in. And that was really the Reformed way. There's nothing unique about Owen in that way. In fact, it was people like the Sassinians who denied that kind of mindset, or at least leaned uh, quite a ways away from that uh, toward a more rationalistic understanding of Scripture and uh, rejecting kind of just church tradition mindset, right? We don't use tradition, or we at least don't see it as very important. It's a scripture, and what I think scripture says, and that's all that matters, this biblicist type of mindset. And I know people don't like that word, but there is a, a legitimate use for that term in the negative. Um, but it's important to note that that's really what Owen was coming from as he was uh, coming through these things. And, and kind of along those lines about the Sassinians, uh, Truman says this as well. This is page 29. Uh, he says, nevertheless, in light of Socinian claims to reject the Trinity, etc., on the basis of sola scriptura, the creeds are useful as a practical test of orthodoxy. It is quite clear from this that Owen was not so naive as to hold the view that theology as a discipline could be pursued simply in terms of the reader with an empty mind engaging in the bare text of scripture and thus somehow automatically imbibing pure doctrine. That was the professed approach of the Socinians and the results were neither Catholic nor Orthodox. Owen's position is far more subtle. What lies behind his argument at this point is his understanding that a crucial relationship exists between the great human formulations of the faith and the words of Scripture. While the latter are the ultimate norm for theology, the former are useful in providing a working doctrinal framework within which the theological task of scriptural interpretation can take place, although not in such a way that Scripture is ultimately subordinate to the creeds. The creeds act as heuristic devices that facilitate the unlocking of Scripture's teaching. That uh, Scripture's teaching, the result is that Owen's theology, far from being a radical break from the earlier tradition, is rather a critical appropriation of that tradition for contemporary needs. End quote. So, what Truman is bringing out here is that Owen didn't believe in this, you know, matrix kind of understanding of scripture you just plug it in and you download doctrine and that's it there's no there's nothing else informing it there's nothing else helping us to understand it there, there that's ridiculous uh, owen and the reform did not believe that uh and i think that's that's very clear as we look at the historical data but unfortunately there are those who want today who want to claim uh that they are holding to some sort of reform confession but at the very least, lean away from that type of mindset of, yeah, we, we can use these other helps and the creeds are authoritative, at least in a secondary way. Uh, and we got to be careful about that. Um, and I, I think that's one of the, the neat things about this book is that Truman hits home on this point and really tries to bring out that this is not something that was normal for the reformed and that we shouldn't think like that. Right. We shouldn't have this mindset of just denying creeds and confessions and we just have the Bible. That is not a reformed mindset. That's not what the church did historically, at least in the reform context. And we have if we're going to claim uh, and I think, too, if we if we claim we're going to be in the reformed tradition and hold to reformed confessions, then we need to think like them, at least hermeneutically. 
Now, that doesn't mean we embrace everything that they taught. We don't, we as Baptists don't agree, and even particular Baptists at the time didn't agree with everything that the Reform taught, obviously, especially on things like baptism and uh, in other places. But they did see this unification with the church's teaching throughout history, even before them, and identifying themselves with the Reformed at the time on those core issues. Uh, and that is something I think that's lost today. We There are those who I think come out of a fundamentalist kind of background, um, and those who uh, are influenced by a more modern understanding of Scripture. And so they recoil at creeds and confessions. They recoil at having these things as the creeds as having authority. And I think what we have to be careful not to fall into that mindset, um, or we're not really following in the mindset of these guys. You can learn a lot by reading history. Uh, and unfortunately, in our day, we don't like to read. We like things given to us quickly. We like tweet-level information, right? I want my 140 characters or whatever it is now with Twitter Blue or whatever the, the subscription is. But we want information quickly instead of using our time wisely to read. This takes time and effort. This is hard work. This is not something that you just, you know, you, you read and, and you're done with it. Sometimes you have to struggle with stuff. Sometimes you have to work through implications. Sometimes you got to go talk to somebody and say, hey, can you help me understand this better? And work through stuff slowly. It's hard work. Um, and I think that might be part of the reason why people don't don't uh, do this stuff. Um, and there's also this recoil against philosophy in theology. Oh, Aristotle, that's pagan. We can't use that in theology. Well, actually, Truman brings out at the time that was uh, an important thing that uh, was influential to Owen. Let's look at page. Uh, let's look at page thirty-four. He says, historically speaking, it is important to remember that Aristotelian thinking provided the dominant scientific philosophical worldview of the 17th century. Okay, and this also was in the case for, for Christians as well, not just in the pagan world. This was the dominant philosophical understanding at the time. We jump to page 37. Owen's writings are no exception to the general tendency within Orthodoxy, both Reformed and Lutheran, to use Aristotelian language, logic, and metaphysics as useful tools, both for polemical purposes and for positive theological construction. So Owen was influenced by Aristotelian thought, and this was common within the Reformed world. They had no problem utilizing philosophical concepts that may not have been in Scripture explicitly, but that were consistent with it and maybe there implicitly. I mean, there's, I mean, you can point to multiple places where you see Aristotelian concepts being used in Scripture, one of them being in Romans 11.36, from him, to him, through him, all things, right? God is the efficient cause, which is one of Aristotle's causes. He's the creator of all things, right? And he's also the final cause, right? Thing, all things are to him. That's the final cause. That's an Aristotelian concept. You can see these principles in Scripture. So you can see why... The Reform had no problem utilizing certain concepts that were consistent with Scripture. They had no problem doing that because uh, they saw them as helpful guides, not as replacements for Scripture, but as consistent with it. And they could be helpful in formulating difficult doctrines of Scripture um, that were not easy to just bring out 
through normal language. So these things could be very helpful. And we, and we do see uh, Truman does, a, I think, a good job talking about this Aristotelian influence on the reform, especially in Owen. And it's in the first chapter. It's called Owen in Context. So he's giving the historical context of what Owen found himself in at the time. Uh, he says on page 38, it seems certain that he, that's Owen, was first exposed to the theological application of Aristotelian philosophy at Oxford, where he was a student of Thomas Barlow, 1607-1691, the future Bishop of Lincoln. So again, this was, this was his education. This was the standard philosophical and scientific, or the, at least the dominant one at the time. And it makes sense why he would be taught it. You go to school, you learn these things. Of course, you're gonna you're gonna be influenced by them uh, to some extent. Uh, then on page forty two, we see uh, we see Truman talking about these things a little bit further. Uh, he says Lutheran and Reformed, Orthodox and Remonstrant, all used Aristotelian language and patterns to establish their respective and radically different theological viewpoints. Thus, Owen's positive use of Aristotelian thought does not allow us to prejudge his theology. Cheap victories over Reformed orthodoxy based on such philosophically naive presuppositions are no substitute for careful and dispassionate examination of texts. Owen's Aristotelian language must be judged by how the words are used by him, not by what they meant to Aristotle. And his Aristotelian metaphysics must be judged by its result, not simply by its presence. That's important. We have to be very careful about things like that. What Owen, Owen would take language and utilize it, not necessarily in the way that Aristotle meant it, but in light of the biblical framework he was trying to put it in. So we need to look at the result of what he did, not just the presence of Aristotelian thought is what Truman is trying to say here. We shouldn't judge Owen just because he used Aristotelian philosophy. We've got to examine his work and, and see what the result was of his work. Uh, so he does a really good job of bringing out things like that in here um, as he's going through and talking about all these, you know, the, the context that Owen was in and showing us that this really wasn't uncommon at the time to use this kind of thing. Um, so very, very helpful. Um, another thing that he talks about is the analogy of faith. Uh, this is a principle I think that Christians use frequently. Um, or at least try to, and probably subconsciously. I don't think anyone goes around saying, well, I'm using the analogy of faith to understand Scripture. I don't think anyone is doing that necessarily. Uh, maybe us brainiacs who, are, who read more, uh, we, we might use those kind of things, but your average Christian isn't going to go around and saying, the analogy of faith, that's what I use. The analogy of faith is really the understanding that we use the clearer passages of Scripture to interpret the less clear passages. In our confession, uh, the Second London Baptist Confession is clear about this. And I think the Westminster uses this uh, similar, if not the same language uh, that the Westminster or that the 1689 London Baptist Confession uses. Um, but it's an important concept. And Truman does, I think, a good job of, of discussing this um, a little bit more. And he really is really talking about opposing views that Owen had to deal with as well. Arminianism and Socinianism were two views that Owen was having to do with. I, one critique I do have, um, I do wish he had gone into Socinianism more. He kind of touched on it, and I understand that's not the point of his book, 
but I think it would have been helpful if he dove into Socinianism in more detail, gave more examples of it um, to give really an appreciation of where that the influence of that view and how dangerous it was. One of the books I'll be talking about in the future um, dives into Socinianism quite a bit and gives really a, a really in-depth framework of what that was and how that played out in different players in there as well. So I think that it will be helpful um, as we go through that um, to kind of see what that looks like. But Truman does kind of put Owen in this fight with Arminians and Socinians. Um, but you see this radical biblicism from the Socinians, and they were accepting only what was expressly set down in the Bible, at least some of them were, um, which, of course, Owen countered, right? And the analogy of faith, uh, that scripture must be interpreted using the clearer passages, uh, and it, it, that was really one of the ways that Owen countered that Socinian understanding of scripture. And it also meant having the Trinity as the backdrop for interpre you know, biblical interpretation. You just assume that the Trinity, there. if you didn't have a Trinitarian framework, you had no biblical interpretation, essentially. Okay, So this was a, a given assumption before anything could be understood in scripture. And I think Truman brings out these understandings to better help the reader understand what they were dealing with here as it relates to heresy floating around. Um, so essentially, ironically, given that Socinians were so passionate about biblicism and using the Bible and in pushing away other authorities and other helps in using this, this rational mindset to scripture, Owen, one of the ways he countered that was by just going back to scripture, right? Using scripture to interpret scripture, not just letting one's interpretation of the text, uh, pure, you know, just imbibe doctrine, quote unquote, interpretive understanding of the text, guide what the text means, but using other scriptures. Okay, you say this, Socinians, about the scriptures, but what does the scripture say over here that's more clear than what this passage says? Is it consistent? Is it accord with reason, right? Are those things consistent and helpful? Uh, so I think Truman does a good job bringing out that contrast and trying to show that Owen was dealing with some pretty dangerous players at the time with the Sassinians um, and trying to make sure that orthodoxy was defended and that our epistemology, how we know things, is properly uh, defended. So I think he does a good job of that. But this is a really helpful work, um, and I think that's all we have for today. I'm not... My goal is not to read the book to you, but just give you a general overview. And, and I would recommend this book. Go get it. Uh, it's, a, it's a great read to add to your library. The Claims of Truth, John Owen's Trinitarian Theology from Reformation Heritage Books. You can get it. I think I got it for like 13 bucks, if I remember correctly. It's not expensive. It's paperback. It's cheap. Um, but I would highly recommend it. Go get it. Uh, add it to your library. Read it. Um, understand the history of these things, um, and hopefully it will help us to better understand where our confessional context comes from. It wasn't created in a vacuum. It wasn't, we shouldn't apply anachronistic understandings to our confessions and the Reformed. We should be understanding these things as they were understood at the time, and reading historical works helps us to do that. So hopefully this has been a helpful review. There will be more book reviews coming. Um, but hopefully that's been helpful. Thanks for joining me today. 
And Lord willing, we will be back next week. Have a great Lord's Day tomorrow and take care.